You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome all to this week's Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm David Grubbs, an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University, and I'm at the helm this week. With me this week is Nathan Gilmore, associate professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How's life treating you, sir? Doing pretty well. I just got out of my last final exam, so I've got to grade that set and some straggler stuff. And I actually might have my grading done on time this semester, which is unusual. Very, very cool. Now, Emanuel's academic calendar is a bit of our ahead of ours, so you're in the 2019-2020 school year, right? Yes, yes, yes. The next semester will go straight to 2030. Excellent, excellent. Uh, we are still in spring of 2018. Next week is our finals week, and, and then the week after that, Grubbs Baby 4 is coming. By some means, we don't know. Anyway... By the time this drops, who knows, the baby may even be there. I'm, I'm getting nervous, y'all. I don't know why this is the fourth time. The third time was the charm. The fourth time is just, you know, whatever. It's but, like bonus round. <laughs> but, but, but I am also not giving birth. That's, that's incredibly pertinent. And um, also biologically very advantageous. Indeed, indeed. Um... And before I say things that get me in trouble with the entire CFP cast, what else is going on on the network? Well, we've got a uh, Before They Were Live episode on Ichabod and Mr. Toad that's going to be available when you hear this, dear listeners. So be sure to go and listen to that. I mean, those conversations are always fun. What else do we have, David? I'm looking forward to that particular episode. Uh, also, the the CFP, which we just mentioned... Uh, is re- recorded an episode on the Terry Pratchett novel Weird Sisters, uh, which you know Pratchett fans out there uh, rejoice. Um, and uh, my wife Katie Grubbs was at the helm on that one, so I'm looking forward to hearing it. Um, I haven't heard the episode. All I heard was the the laughter that echoed from the bedroom. So, yeah, that's where she records. So. There you go. Well, be be listening for those things, be watching for those things, dear listeners. Uh, In the meanwhile, uh, you will note that I have not uh, introduced our regular third compatriot, Michael Farmer, assistant professor of English at Crown College in Minnesota. Uh, We are recording at a different time this week, and Michael can't be here, so... If you're an old hand, you know what that means. This is a decimal episode. A decimal episode. I can't make that happen. <laughs> anyway, so last uh, episode was 240, so this is 240.1. We are going to be uh, t- 
taking it easy and exploring a topic that's uh, near and dear to our hearts. Uh, we are all Christian humanists on this show. We like we like books. We like um, doing various things that are uh, at least coterminous uh, co with the great tradition, uh, though those things might vary. And today we're going to be talking about college honors programs. So what, what else could be more fitting? So Nathan, you have boots on the ground experience with this, while I have not. What is a college honors program? And is that the same thing as a great books program? And y'all got one of those. So where does it fit in the taxonomy? Yeah, right now we actually have two of them, which is even better than one. Oh, the, wow. Uh, Emmanuel College Honors Program uh, is actually its second iteration in the life of the college, and it started in the fall of 2010. I was one of its first professors, uh, and what it basically did was replaced your freshman writing, your literature class, speech class, uh, a couple other classes that kind of drifted in and out of the curriculum with more rigorous versions of the same. So because of my own Milligan College background, I tended to turn mine into great books flavored sorts of things. We were reading, you know, Plato's Republic in composition, uh, reading some fairly advanced theology uh, when we got to the senior theology uh, seminar. Uh, but yeah, I mean, a lot of honors programs, uh, especially in Christian colleges, and we'll probably get into why that's the case, uh, tend to be great books programs. So to kind of, you know, give the taxonomy, I guess. An honors program, generally speaking, is a group of courses that are either supplementary to the core or else replace the core. Uh, generally speaking, it doesn't constitute a major in its own right, uh, that are there for students who have demonstrated, you know, achievement, work ethic, intelligence, things like that in their pre-college career. Uh, and, you know, the aim of them, uh, you know, we're going to talk about it some length later, uh, but it seems to be to provide an incentive for those kinds of students to come to our college, wherever our college is, uh, and to get in with, you know, a cohort of like-minded folks. Now, that's our old honors program, which was simply called the honors program, pretty plain vanilla. Uh, our new one, which is going to start in the fall of 18, and I'm pretty excited about it. I'm the director of this new one. It's called Virtuosi because I had been reading some Machiavelli before I wrote up the proposal. That's really the only reason that I went Italian instead of nice. Greek or, you know, some other uh, noble language. Uh, but it is a lot more great books oriented, but it's also very interdisciplinary oriented. So instead of taking honors composition instead of regular, instead of taking honors art history instead of regular, Virtuosi takes all six of those subjects. So it's going to be philosophy, literature, history, composition, speech, uh, and I'm missing one here. At any rate, I'm, I'm not going to try to re recite them again here, and blends all six of those into each of the seven courses. So, for instance, in the first one, which I teach, uh, we're going to be doing some reading about, you know, Greek sculpture, Greek architecture, along with reading some Homer and some Aeschylus, along with reading some Plato and Aristotle, along with reading some history of the Peloponnesian War, history of the Persian Wars, along with some oratory, along with some composition, so on and so forth, so that all of those things are bouncing off of each other in each one of those classes. So, I mean, the models there uh, obviously are, are programs like the Tory Honors Institute over in Biola, uh, 
the Columbia Great Books Program, the Milligan Humanities Program. I tried to take, you know, what I know about all of these programs that I have enjoyed reading and hearing about so much, and in the case of Milligan, participating in it, and tried to blend them together into one program, and that's what we are starting in the fall. And like I said, I'm excited about it. This is uh, one of those bizarre instances where if you've been listening to this program long enough and you heard our uh, episode about Christian Humanist University, which was what, David, seven, eight years ago? Yeah, something like that. Uh, basically, you know, Emmanuel College has given me the opportunity to create a miniature version of Christian Humanist University here in North Georgia. That is super rad. I, I'm, I'm, I'm super happy for you. I, I will say this, David, I have had to learn because we are a small college and, you know, they didn't hire on extra personnel to start this thing. I have had to learn the admissions and financial aid and housing and a lot of different departments of the college that I did not have contact with for my first eight years. Uh, so that has been a challenge. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, whenever we're sort of wish casting, we don't necessarily think about the the pragmatic elements that also have to be sorted out. Yes, indeed. So what is an honors program for? What What's its goal? I mean, because shouldn't, why, why not just make all of the classes challenging and rigorous and great booksy? Well, honestly, that was the model at Milligan College when I was an undergrad there. Uh, everyone from every major, uh, unless there were certain hours that transferred in, uh, took a sequence called Humanities, which did, honestly, a lot of what Virtuosi does. Uh, so, you know, that's the model that I emerged from. And I mean, there's a part of me uh, that wishes that we could do this with the whole undergraduate curriculum here at, you know, Emmanuel College. And in fact, some of the professors with whom I've had conversations with the program said, why don't you do that with the whole curriculum? And I said, I, baby steps, let's do it with the honors program first. And if we <laughs> like the uh, flavor of it, uh, perhaps we can do it as well with other stuff. But an honors program, generally speaking, is aimed at bringing together these students who are high achievers, like I said earlier, and to put them in proximity with, with each other so that they are challenging each other uh, in ways that a lot of college students would not necessarily challenge them. So, you know, the, the analogy that I like to use is, you know, this is something analogous to, you know, collegiate level baseball, right? Uh, if you get onto a team like the Emmanuel College Lions or certainly one of the big NCAA teams, you were more than likely the hot shot at the high school level you were probably performing at a level that most of the people around you and most of the people playing against you simply could not match. And so when you step into that NCAA environment, uh, one of the great benefits is you have to elevate what you do as a baseball player uh, in order even to keep up with the people around you. And therefore, those goods that are inherent to baseball, uh, and I love talking about the goods inherent to baseball. I talk about this every time I teach Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. Uh, you have to elevate the extent to which you acquire, master, and exhibit those goods in order to keep up. The same kind of thing happens with an honors program. When you're in there with a bunch of other people who are all hot shots at that high school level, uh, you really elevate and you really take on challenges that you probably wouldn't take on otherwise. And, you know, in my own experience at Milligan, uh, we didn't have a formal honors program back then. They actually only started their honors program within the last five years. 
but as an accident of history, I, I like to call it, uh, in the, you know, roughly speaking, five graduating classes, two years before me, two years after me, and my graduating class, we had something along the line of 20 people who went on to the PhD in various disciplines. Uh, wow. So, I mean, and it from what I hear from, you know, professors who are there at Milligan now, that hasn't happened since, and it didn't happen before. It was just one of those weird, the right people showed up at the right time moments. Uh, but in that environment, you know, uh, I really took on academic and intellectual challenges that I never would have uh, in another environment. So I think that's, you know, basically what, you know, the honors program does best. I mean, a lot of them are also funded. Virtuosi, for instance, you know, provides our largest academic scholarship. This is how uh, confident our president is. Uh, and, and I love telling this story because it speaks well of Ron White, not the stand-up comic, the uh, president <laughs> of Emmanuel College. But uh, when I went to him with this proposal, you know, I had a progressive scholarship that went up to, you know, I think 5000 a year by the time you got done. And he said, no, this is, this is too good a program. We have to actually fund this thing. And now this thing basically provides a scholarship of $40,000 over four years. So, I mean, wow, he is, yeah, I mean, he, he pitched this thing so that it is competitive with a fairly high level athletic scholarship here to manual. So I'm, I'm excited about it, but I mean, it, the honors programs that you've been around, David, I mean, is that basically what you've seen as their goals? The, the honors programs that, uh, that that I've I've watched from afar, and also uh, the honors college at HBU. Yeah, I I, I don't um, I'm I, I don't teach in the honors college. Um, uh, um, among other things, their uh, their their teaching schedule is is arranged slightly different from ours. They have a lot of tutorial sessions. They have long writing sessions. Um, it doesn't. Uh, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily fit neatly with the, the, the standard 50-minute Monday, Wednesday, Friday, hour 15, Tuesday, Thursday um, uh, rotation for uh, most other faculty. Uh, but I do, uh, a lot of my friends uh, teach in the Honors College, and a lot of my students are Honors students. And, th and that point that you made about, uh, about creating the community is really is something that they push um, they have houses like hogwarts and they're very you know just deeply intensely nerdy and intentional about all of it um and that's one of the, the one of the things i love about you know just not uh, in admiring them from afar and working with those students is when they end up in my classes um they know each other um, the where I teach HBU is actually large enough that it is conceivable that you could end up in a in a class and at least in the gen eds you could end up in a class uh, with mostly students that you've never directly met. Um, that that's that's still a possibility. But all the honor all the honor students know each other. So when I have a class with them. Um, it's 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 as if the the course comes with a pre-made community they become this the seeds of dialogue um and uh rapport 
and I, I appreciate that. So it's kind of an Aristotelian friendship thing then, right? Yeah, that sounds about right. I mean, you know, that common pursuit of a human good is really what's at the core of that. And, you know, like I said, you know, in my mind, that makes it analogous to a baseball team, right? You know, but instead of, you know, pursuing the goods that come with left-handed batting and playing shortstop, uh, these are, you know, the goods that come from dialogue and difficult reading and things like that. So, yeah, I think that's about right. Very, very cool. Well, the honors programs that I'm familiar with, including the one here at HVU, uh, all the ones I'm, I'm familiar with emphasize the Socratic method in class, um, discussion as the basis. Is that definitive of honors programs? Is it typical? I know, I know you use the method. Um, I, how, how much is this kind of a standard issue thing? The method. I like that. <laughs> the method. <laughs> With a capital T and a capital M. Yes. Yeah, that this is one of the departures that I'm definitely making to the honors program as it existed from, you know, 2010 to the, the current year, is that that program, generally speaking, kind of let each professor, you know, dictate the terms of the class. So, I mean, if a professor was already given to lecture then it became a more rigorous lecture class. And if a professor was more given to learning scenarios, then it became a more rigorous learning scenarios class and so on and so forth. This one I have, you know, in conversation with the folks who are going to be teaching it, I mean, we have talked through what we want a class session to look like and, I mean, why we want it to look that way. And what's been really great is when we've had students on campus and done sort of uh, for lack of a better term, you know, uh, mock classes for virtuosi, which is, you know, kind of amusing in its own right since the program doesn't exist yet. Uh, but students have been, you know, very receptive to it. You know, they've been a little bit frightened by it, frankly, because they are used to a more recitation style of discussion. Uh, you know, generally speaking, when their teachers do discussion style, this is what these students have told me, they pose a question to the class, they wait for the correct answer, and then they move on to the next thing. Whereas if you hit the right answer in a virtuosi section, that is an invitation to further interrogation. Uh, you know, you don't get uh, the fire lit because you got a wrong answer. You get the fire lit precisely because you got a right answer. And, you know, like you said, I mean, that takes its inspiration from Plato's version of Socrates a lot more than other written versions of Socrates from the ancient world. And I think that, you know, the reason that it often gets paired with these honor sections is precisely because these are the students that we believe have the capability to benefit from it. Uh, and there's a, there's kind of an aristocratic assumption built into that. And I mean, that this is one of those places where, you know, again, because I'm on finals week, we had to reschedule this thing, but I would have enjoyed hearing Michael's take on this because this is one of the things that gives me a little bit of anxiety when it comes to directing an honors program is that my democratic streak wants to take this to the streets, so to speak, if I can misuse the Doobie Brothers for a second. Uh, you know, I want to press students from all kinds of backgrounds because I think that that kind of intellectual encounter is good for all kinds of people. And, and for that reason, David, you know, I have made the uh, Socrates Cafe, which is one of the events of the Emmanuel College Christian Humanists, 
an event where we invite anyone who wants to come. And I even, I even offer, pardon me, extra credit to students in my classes to come to it just so they can see what that kind of intellectual encounter looks like. So I, you know, I, I realized I, I started answering your question. Then I went into the confession booth there for a second, but, uh, you know, I know that you're more of a lecturer than I am, uh, which is to say you eat more cheeseburgers than Gandhi did. Uh, but you know, <laughs> in your experience, I mean, you know, these kind of Socratic classes, you know, have you tried to lead them and just found that lectures are more enjoyable or do you try to reserve the Socratic flavor for upper division students? Or, I mean, what's your relationship to this method, David? Socratic for upper division is, is more is, is, is more my flavor. Um, I, I, a lot of the way I think of how I approach gen ed classes is, uh, I, I think of upper levels as discipleship and gen eds as evangelism. And when I'm, when I'm going in to teach, especially gen ed literature courses, uh, I know that for many of the students who are in the room, uh, they're not they're not confident to engage with the literature. They're waiting for me to you know if, if discussion happens, uh, they're incredibly nervous around it because they don't know what the Sunday school answer is. Um, and I I try to use the lecture to to preach the love of what we're doing into them. <laughs> yeah, that, that makes some sense. That, that makes some sense. So, you know, that that's that's my approach. That's my approach in the gen eds. Um when I get more into upper division courses, um there there's there's more conversation uh because I have I have more partners in conversation. Frankly, uh I think I'm I'm much more cowardly and uh, I'm, too, I'm too cowardly to push them to talk when they don't want to, and I'm too impatient to wait it out. Um, neither of those speak super well to, uh, of me, but you started the confession, so. <laughs> yeah. No, that's good, that's good. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, like I said, I, I often joke with students that, you know, I, I, I've heard rumors that people do lecture classes, but I've never actually been in one myself. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's, uh, that's definitely one of the commitments that I've developed over the years. I mean, I do, you know, for instance, in a, you know, 75 minute Tuesday, Thursday class session, I might give a couple, you know, three or four minute talks just to clarify a concept or give a little bit of historical context. But by and large, you're right. I mean, you know, my, my own democratic streak, uh, you know, leads me to design class sessions where the students do most of the talking and I'm largely posing questions as a response to what they're saying. And I mean, that involves a lot of technological integration. Uh, you know, I mean, this was a, and, and again, I mean, you know, Jeff Bilbro is such a nice guy that, you know, a Twitter fight with him involves, I'm not sure you're right about that, but you know, that, that, that's been the basis <laughs> of a couple uh, Twitter feuds that I've had with Jeff Bilbro about, you know, tech in the classroom, you know, my main thing is, you know, tech is a way for me to see what a broader spectrum of students is doing 
so that I can respond to it in real time and actually give them something like a Socratic encounter, even in a class of 23. Uh, but again, you know, and I, and I realize saying that, you know, my Socratic tendencies come from a democratic streak is wildly off historically. Uh, but, you know, <laughs> they, they do fit pedagogically, I think. I, I mean, the Greeks are at least credited with, you know, democracy, even if not not everybody vote voted at least a lot of people did you know that's that's sort of sort of democratic it's it's slouching towards it i guess yeah well and i mean you know and and uh i'm going to go ahead and recommend a a course on uh iTunes U it's by a Yale historian Donald Kagan on ancient greece and i forget the name of the lecture course but if you search k a g a n kagan ancient greece you'll find it easily enough but he makes the case that the actual life of the democracy served as a kind of education for citizens uh, so that, you know, Plato's grand critique of democracy was in some ways a caricature. It's this idea that anyone, irrespective of, you know, their stupidity or their lack of education, has an equal voice. His point is that most people, just by the nature of these social encounters, don't tend to speak up a lot in those gatherings until they have gotten a certain level of comfort. So there was a sort of organic education that was happening simply by mandating participation in the ecclesia. Uh, And, you know, like I said, I think that I can grab onto that and still appreciate a lot of things that the very anti-democratic Plato has to teach us and the very anti-democratic Herodotus has to teach us. Uh, But, you know, I think that, you know, by and large, uh, that education in conversation does some things, right? Uh, I think that, you know, a student who, again, you know, and I use digital technology a fair bit to facilitate this, but a student who has to articulate a point, give reasons for it, respond to inter- interrogations of it, learn something about the shape of language and the shape of thought alongside whatever, you know, particular texts we're teaching that day, and I think that's valuable enough that, you know, I mean, you were saying that, you know, your patience runs out with students who won't talk. Um, mine does, too. I'm not claiming any kind of saintliness on that front. Uh, but ultimately, on the long view, my own irritation is worth that kind of education that the students get, in my view. Does that does that make some sense, that trade-off? Oh, I'm not saying it's not worth it. I'm just saying... I haven't been able to bring myself to pay it. I got you. I got you. And then, I mean, I'll just go ahead and say it because I've got student evaluations on my mind. I often get blasted in end of semester evaluations because students say, you know, Dr. Gilmore doesn't actually teach. He just makes us talk for an hour. And when I get my evaluations, those who bothered to write anything, if it's not a beef that they had with me, what they write is some variation of Dr. Grubbs really loves what he teaches. And that, that, that to me is, is, is what I'm seeking. Not, not, you know, not them think, not them necessarily praising me, but what I want them, what, what I try to do in the lecture is, is communicate the love of something. Yeah, that makes some sense. That makes some sense. I'm not yeah. going to do it, but it makes some sense. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we, you know we're we're sort of e- 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 each each in our own way approaching 
approaching this, I think, from uh, in, in ways that have classical roots. Oh, sure thing. Well, speaking of classical roots and returning to the idea of great books, that's sort of a contentious sort of phrase in itself. Um, is virtuosi is it is it a great books program i think i think you've already said uh said to some degree what that is and what is the value of pursuing uh, even developing a new great books program in a time when the privileging the privileging of authors and cultures is uh, a, a suspicious move yeah one of the things that i've tried to insist on as we've talked about virtuosi especially with my fellow faculty who are going to be teaching in the program is that i don't want to think of it in terms of a western canon with a capital w and a capital c and i don't want to think about it in terms of great books as in there's some list out there that you know we can simply follow but instead i, I try to combine some thoughts that i've run into over the years from uh, c.s lewis and from seamus heaney uh, and from lewis what i draw is the idea that, you know, reading old books and reading alien books teaches us to pose questions that we didn't know were questions. Uh, in his famous essay, you know, uh, that, that's a uh, preface or a prologue or one of those P words uh, to Athanasius's On the Trinity, uh, he says that, you know, even the most uh, insistent ideological opponents in the 20th century, because that's when he was writing, I think it applies to the 21st as well, are still going to share a great deal of common ground that neither one is going to share with someone from the 4th century. And I think that's about right. And one of the reasons why I teach, uh, you know, for instance, Plato's Republic, which I've taught probably about as much as I've taught any other book that I've ever taught, uh, is that Plato in that book, through Socrates, is posing certain questions that students in the 21st century don't even know our questions. And I mean, it's things like, uh, what effect should a good community have on the soul? We are so conditioned to think of the soul as something individual and something that should be shielded from the public life that it never even occurs to us to ask what the nature is of that connection between the public and the soul. And likewise, you know, when I teach Dante, uh, one of the questions that I want them to ask is, you know, what are the different ways that sin can distort the soul, because that's really what Inferno is all about if you read it allegorically. And again, our tendency is to think of harm as the only thing that, you know, really marks something off as bad. Uh, but what Dante wants to entertain, and the question that Dante wants to pose, uh, is, you know, are there other kinds of distortions and other kinds of uh, sacrilege that, you know, aren't directly bodily harm but are still nonetheless terrible right so in that respect you know what i want is questions that we don't realize are questions coming to our students and then from seamus heaney uh you know from a, an interview that he gave about his beowulf translation and you know uh david you and i could talk about that beowulf translation for some time but we're going to both resist today <laughs> uh, but he said that you know in some ways reading beowulf is a multicultural education in a way that reading a contemporary Japanese novel is not because that contemporary Japanese novel is still informed by modern assumptions. So the idea that, you know, questions that are forgotten, 
that chronological multiculturalism, those are the kinds of things that I've tried to introduce into the conversation among the seven of us who are teaching virtuosi when we've talked about what kinds of texts do we want to get into. Because, again, you know, the idea of, you know, a single great list, or a single list, pardon me, of great books, I mean, I'll admit it sometimes has a certain appeal to me, uh, but I think that it has more baggage than it's worth. I think what's a lot more worthwhile when we think about what kinds of books we want our students to read is to ask, what kinds of questions do these books get us asking that we wouldn't be asking unless we read these books? So, I mean, does that, you know, approach make any sense, or am I just concealing the fact that we're a great books program, but I want to sound like a hipster? <laughs> no, I, I think that's I, I think that's a, a a better way to go about it than just um, these are the masters because once you've once you've sort of positioned it that way, um, there aren't a whole lot of of positions relative to the book that students can take other than worship or rejection of the whole dang project. Yeah, that's about right. That's about right. Uh, one thing though that I think might maybe could could bridge the gap a little bit is is to think of it uh, is to think of the those questions that these texts uh, raise the these these questions that your students have never thought of asking uh, that a lot of these books taught previous generations in or previous uh, previous iterations previous phases of the culture that we're now in that a lot of these books taught those phases how to answer those questions and a lot of the 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 questions that we know how to ask and answers we know how to give were formed in conversation with those texts that we no longer read which makes our answers and our questions in some ways less sensible without those those ongoing dialogue parts yeah, that makes a good deal of sense, Dave. And it's it's interesting. Right now, I'm reading through uh, one of Bell Hooks's books on teaching, uh, and you know my when I you know my uh, attention slips a little bit, I'm tempted to think, okay, you know, this is an entirely you know predictable line of conversation. This has been the agenda of the you know postmodern academy for the last 25 years, until I remember that she, she published this book 25 years ago. Uh, th this is the book that set that agenda. <laughs> so there's something to be said <laughs> yeah. for, you know, uh, paying respect where, you know, respect is due. Uh, Bell Hooks is, you know, posing the questions that the Academy has taken the last 25 years trying to answer. And that deserves some of my respect. Right. So, I mean, in that in that sense, uh, you know, I, I think one of the temptations of the great books approach is to say that uh, any recent book is going to be inherently suspect, whereas any book, you know, that people are still reading uh, must be good because it has survived the Thunderdome as long as it has, right? Uh, but <laughs> yeah. again, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in what kinds of questions they're raising. Yeah. I, you know, and, and a lot of that is, uh, I, I think, I know you're a lit guy. But I think you're probably more of a ideas and history of ideas guy than I am. I think that might be fair to say. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I, I tend to dabble more, whereas you're more focused and disciplined than I am. 
Well, I don't know about discipline. I, I was going to say uh, more parochial, but, but I'll take your word. Your word's good. The, uh, the, yeah, the, the idea that we, we, we could, you know, simply sort of pick up with the conversation where it is, dive into it at this moment and contribute to it meaningfully. Well, and all I'm doing right now is developing C.S. Lewis's allegory from his, his introduction to Athanasius, um, that if you enter the conversation that started at 10 a.m., you know, at, you know, noon, uh, there's a whole lot of stuff that you've missed. And as a result, you don't understand fully what's going on around you. Um, I, I really do think if you live in a culture that's shaped by, you know, thinkers who started off, uh, a, uh, a declaration of independence, you know, talking about people's right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that you probably ought to go read some of those books that might have shaped the ways they talked about happiness instead of simply saying, ah, and here I can insert the things that make me happy. And like ice cream. Yes, or, or pizza rolls and whatever the current iteration of Xbox is. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, I, I try to, uh, in the the co uh, composition as we teach it at HBU uh, has, has a little bit of a great books feel to it. And the Declaration of Independence is in there, but we don't get to that until after we've looked at Nicomachean Ethics and the idea of eudaimonia and Matthew 5 uh, in order to now, let, now let's talk about what is this happiness that you're free to pursue. <laughs> yeah, that makes good sense. Well, how should, and or in your case, does this honors program relate to the rest of the curriculum? And what might that mean in particular for a student who isn't a humanities major? Most of ours, most of ours are humanities majors, but some of them aren't. Uh, is this is this a program that would leave them out? Oh, not by any means. And it's interesting in our current iteration, uh, almost none of our honors program graduates are humanities majors. So, I mean, these are folks Ooh. who are pre-med majors. These are folks who are psychology majors, business majors, uh, kinesiology majors heading for physical therapy careers. Uh, and again, you know, the parts of the curriculum that I've been responsible for that took on that great books flavor uh, you know, I've always pitched it to them as, you know, you're going to have plenty of credit hours that prepare you to be a specialized professional. Uh, it's going to give you the credentials and it's going to give you the vocabulary and it's going to give you some of the field experience so that you can enter into a very specialized professional field, do the work of a credentialed professional in that field. What I'm interested in is what are you doing with those hours when you're not on the clock? When you're not on that clock, you're going to be a parent, you're going to be a citizen, hopefully you're going to be a member of some church. And what I want to, I guess what I want to inculcate in the curriculum that I teach to those folks, I'm not going to be able to teach you how to do physical therapy, but I might be able to teach you to raise some questions so that when you're in a community that's not your workplace, or maybe even that is your workplace, 
uh, you're going to be able to pose questions that other people haven't thought to pose because they haven't read the books that you've read with me. Uh, and really, I mean, that in my mind is what Virtuosi does well. You can be uh, a virtuoso or virtuosa uh, and major in anything at Emmanuel College. So in this first cohort that we're bringing in, we've got ministry majors, biology majors, we've got education majors, we've got all kinds of you know people who are going in, in very different directions professionally. But I think what they're going to have as they read through, you know, Aristotle's ethics and as they read through uh, some Shakespeare drama and as they read through Charles Darwin and as they read through Friedrich Nietzsche, what they are going to have is a range of questions so that when they're doing their jobs to be sure, but also when they are part of a church and when they're part of the family and so on and so forth, uh, you know, they're going to have that critical flexibility uh, is, is the virtue that I like to name. And I mean, David, you might hear, myself, hear me uh, quoting myself from the uh, Culture Criticism and the Christian Mind Conference, but that intellectual flexibility to pose the next question, the one that's, you know, just beyond what is obvious. And ultimately, I mean, that's why I am conflicted politically. Uh, you know, I mean, the the idea that, you know, this is for honor students, this is for high achievers. I can see that on a pragmatic level. These are students who are going to have the confidence to take on these books. What I would rather do in, in a lot of interesting ways, uh, but which I, frankly, I don't have the courage yet to propose. Maybe someday I will when I get older and don't give a care, uh, <laughs> is I would like to propose a developmental writing curriculum that is great books flavored. So in other words, you know, if you didn't do well in high school, you need to read Plato more than anyone else does. Um, now, cool. I, I don't know if I'd be able to float that uh, with some of my colleagues because, you know, they've got a very definite idea of what kind of student has the capability to pick up Plato's symposium and read it. But I'll also say that, you know, I've had a lot of students uh, in my gen ed, you know, sophomore lit classes who have really done some cool things with Athenian tragedy that probably would shock the heck out of a lot of my colleagues. So, uh, you know, I, I, you asked me about, you know, students who are not humanities majors. I, I, I want to take it one step further and say, what about students who aren't honor students? Why can't we bring that to them? Um, and someday I might do that, you know? Well, let's let us ask that question that lies beyond the last question. Uh, are there ways that the goals of the honors program or the great books approach, uh, are there some ways that those could be integrated into non-honors courses? How have you, how have you done this? Uh, have you great booksified your gen eds? It sounds like you have in a lot of ways. Yeah, to a, to a great extent. And I mean, several years ago now, I want to say five years ago, uh, Chris Hare and I, he's that he was our department chair for a while and he's, moved on to a job in Oklahoma, unfortunately. Uh, but, you know, we took a look at our sophomore lit class and realized that it was kind of the anthology standards, so to speak. Uh, so that, you know, everyone was teaching a couple Flannery O'Connors and maybe a Hawthorne and a Poe and, you know, possibly a play by Shakespeare if we were very bold, but certainly, uh, you know, a lot of short verse from the early 20th century. And we kind of said, you know, we have got a range of academic specialties, a range of training, a range of 
interest in our department that we're just not using on that gen ed level. So we proposed a new literature sequence. And like I said, it's been running for five years now where every student, irrespective of major, uh, chooses one of four literature classes that is intercontinental, intercontinental, pardon me, but runs a certain chronological span. So uh, English 205 is one of the classes that you can take, and it runs from antiquity up to about uh, the 14th century, give or take. Or if you don't want to take that, you can take English 206, which runs roughly from the 15th century up to the 18th century. Or if you don't want to take that, you can take 208, no, 207, pardon me, that runs from, you know, roughly speaking, the late 18th century to the late 19th century, early 20th century. And then to English 208 runs from early 20th century to 21st. And what we've discovered, although, you know, there are drawbacks to that approach, to be sure, uh, is that, you know, because we professors can, you know, take on those intellectual questions that interest us the most, we are able to bring our own personality and our own interest and our own style, for lack of a better word, uh, into the gen ed classroom. And like I said, you know, one of the great joys is, you know, running into, you know, a business major two years later uh, and having a conversation about economics and Dante uh, or, you know, running into uh, kinesiology major, you know, who's about to take off for physical therapy school. And, you know, they want to talk about Athenian tragedies and, you know, how nasty Agamemnon is. Uh, so I think that one of the, I'm going to say one of the mistakes, I'm not going to call it a sin because I don't think it is, but one of the mistakes that we have made as American colleges, I think, is to underestimate those old books and their accessibility. I think that with a good yeah. teacher yeah. in the classroom, a pretty dang wide range of students can engage with and enjoy a pretty dang wide range of literary texts. Does that make some sense? Oh, I think it makes more than sense. I, I'm I'm completely sold on that idea, and and if I'm wrong, well, teaching evaluations will show. Yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> and like I said, I mean, I I think that there's some value to the I'm I'm going to call it the other approach, knowing that there's a dozen different approaches, but you know the other approach that I've seen most often, I'll put it that way which is to say, you know, for our freshman writing classes, especially in our freshman speech classes, what we want to do is, you know, take material that's already familiar to our students and connect the concepts of composition or oratory or things like that to what they're already familiar with. I think there's some merit to that. My only plea would be to add a third element to that, namely the alien. Uh, and, you know, that can be the culturally alien uh, you know, if you're talking about Japanese novels, if you're talking about Latin American critical theory, uh, it can be the chronologically alien. If you're talking about platonic dialogues or Dante's Commedia, uh, I mean, it, it could even be, you know, the politically alien, you know, I mean, teaching, you know, some, I'm trying to think here, you know, some Marxist inflected texts in a, you know, an American evangelical university. Again, not to try to convert them, and that's always going to be the anxiety there is, you know, what are you what are you doing to our students? But, you know, I mean, in the same way when I teach Aeschylus, right, I'm not trying to turn them into Athenian pagans 
what I am trying to do is get them to see the contingency of the idea that there is one good, all-knowing God. That's not a necessary human state. That is something that could have been otherwise historically, and therefore it deserves some close scrutiny in a way that sometimes we neglect, even at the Christian college. Cool. What do you like? Uh, what do you What do you think about um, the mixing of uh, of disciplines or uh, an interdisciplinary approach in some great books programs? Mixing your lit with your history, with your politics, with your philosophy, and uh, your natural philosophy in there as well. I guess. Uh, ha- have you had a chance to try uh, to 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 do that sort of? Uh, blending of modes with success? Well, what you have just narrated is the Milligan College Humanities program. So, I mean, I've been on that end of it uh, as a student, right? Uh, And it was really formative for me. Uh, You know, in my own English classes, I'll I'll name it by department rather than discipline, uh, you know, I mean, the the joke that uh, some of my English majors like to tell on me uh, and usually to my colleagues in the department, which makes my colleagues raise their eyebrows, is that uh, why do they keep labeling Gilmore's philosophy classes as English? Uh, because, you know, <laughs> this is, you know, just one of the things about my literature classes is that I'm always going to incorporate some philosophical texts in there. Uh, but what they don't realize, I think, is that when I teach Intro to Philosophy in the summer, which I do, uh, we almost always, you know, take a very narrative literary approach to Plato's dialogues. So, you know, I'm asking about plot, character setting, things like that when we talk about Plato. And again, it's partly my own background and then it's also part of my own dabbler's nature uh, is that, you know, I I, I remember reading in uh, Jerry Graff's book, Professing Literature. And uh, David, are you familiar with that book? No, I don't know that one. Yeah, he's a, you know, Gerald Graff, of course, is a, uh, you know, English Romantics scholar, but he wrote this really good history of the English department called Professing Literature. And one of the memorable statements in that book is that the boundary lines of the modern academic departments are the forgotten battlefields of a war that everyone has forgotten. Yes. So, you know, why is it that we, we teach rhetoric in a speech class and in a freshman comp class, but one of those is housed in the English department and the other one's housed in the communication department? Well, the answer to that is a contingent historical answer. It didn't have to be that way. So, you know, I already had this tendency before I read Jerry Graff. Now I've just got someone famous telling me I'm right, which is a dangerous thing. But, you know, (laughs) now I, I take a joy and I take a license when it comes to thinking about where academic departmental boundaries should constrain me, right? So, I mean, you know, in my freshman writing class, you know, the honors version, uh, we'd be reading Plato's Republic, but we might go off on a 20-minute discussion about equilateral triangles. And, you know, my students, you know, are saying, okay, why is it that we're talking about ancient Greeks and, you know, simple geometry in a writing class? And I say, well, I mean, why is it that you think a writing class shouldn't do that? (laughs) Hmm. Hmm. One of my uh, one of my colleagues in the School of Humanities here at HBU 
is a historian. Uh, his name's David Davis. A uh, and, and he's medieval and early modern. He's written a lot of stuff on uh, iconoclasm in Protestant England. But one of the things that he does in all of his history courses is alongside of the history text and history primary sources, he has uh, his students read uh, ma major literary work from the period. So oh, when that's he's right. that's great. Yeah, so when they teach uh, when 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 they're when they're reading early medieval European history, they're also reading Beowulf. So that that's you know that's that's sort of his approach to it, and uh, that's that's rubbed off on me. I'm teaching a medieval lit uh, this coming fall, and uh, instead of doing what I've done before, which is to sort of excerpt the bits of the venerable bead that seemed most uh, most pertinent to the poetry I really wanted to talk about. Um, we're we're gonna take the time to read the whole dang thing. Uh, to get some get some get some history in our lit class, and uh, I guess return the favor to uh, to my history colleague over there. Oh yeah, that's that's definitely the way to the way to go. I think, and I mean, and part of that too, David. I think is you know in the last ten years, as you know, because I've made you read some of it, uh, I've discovered Richard M. Weaver. Uh, yes, and you know he's another writer who has a good historical awareness of the ways that, you know, academic departments have shifted, right? So that rhetoric has stopped being the crown of the liberal arts and it's become basically a hurdle that you clear so you can get to your real stuff. And, you know, one of the things that uh, even in my, you know, gen ed intro to writing classes, uh, I give a final exam and, you know, sometimes my students and sometimes even my colleagues say, why do you need a final exam in, you know, intro to writing? And my answer is always because rhetoric is a science and, you know, I'm going to examine whether or not you have internalized the methods and the vocabularies and the spirituality of this science. And, you know, uh, I'm going to write an exam that's going to make you do that. Nice. Well, are there any other, uh, any other aspects of, of the honors the honors program, the honors college, the great books program, any of those kind of topics that we've uh, sort of bounced around today. Are there any, any bits of that that we haven't probed that you, you really want to uh, vent before we go? Not in the abstract. I, I am uh, confronting the fact that, uh, you know, because of some uh, personnel changes here at Emmanuel College, uh, I am next semester... <laughs> And by next semester, I don't mean the summer. I always teach summer classes too. But in the fall, I am at the same time going to be teaching my first ever upper division Shakespeare class because Chris Hare went to Oklahoma. My first ever section of Virtuosi because it's going to ramp up. And also because, you know, we've got some folks leaving, my first ever section of developmental freshman writing. So I'm going to be teaching, you know, three entirely new things. And, uh, you know, this conversation reminds me that uh, there are certainly precedents in all three of those, but they do not bind me. And, uh, you know, honestly, <laughs> I'm the kind of personality, David, that when I find out that, uh, you know, the borderlines are just, you know, drawn in chalk on the asphalt, I want to jump over them. So I'm excited about the fall. 
uh, you know, and, and maybe as we uh, keep recording in the fall of 18, I'll tell some more stories about how these things pan out because I, I just have a hunch that I'm not going to teach developmental writing the way you should, and I'm almost certain that I'm not going to teach Shakespeare the way you should, and uh, Virtuosi, there's no such thing as the way you should because it doesn't exist yet, so what kind of fun is that? <laughs> Man, uh, a, a fall of reinventing yourself. And yeah, we, yeah. I mean, I you know, most forty-one-year-olds buy a sports car. I uh, reinvent college classes. You know, no, 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 no. Your medium, right? <laughs> well, dear listeners, I hope you've uh, you've enjoyed this uh, this conversation about uh, honors programs, the the concept of of the great books program, what it's good for, uh, directions that it can go, and ways that. Uh, it can be relevant uh, beyond, well, beyond those lines, uh, those chalk lines on the on the pavement that Nathan just referred to. And listeners, I'll go ahead and put in a commercial break here. And I, I've been reticent to do so if we worked on, as we've worked on the program, just because I didn't know if it'd be appropriate. But it's the end of the semester, and and propriety has kind of slipped out the window on me. Uh, but if you know people who are heading to college. Uh, look at Emanuel College's Virtuosi program. I mean, I'm directing it. I'm excited about it. Like I said, this is my uh, sandbox to try out new ideas in Christian education. And I would love for, you know, you listeners to send people this way so that we can experiment. And if you happen to be closer to Houston, hey, hey. Us too. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And, and if you're in the Great White North. Michael would love to see you. So, what's up next? Uh, well, I'm going to talk about that, David. But first, uh, I want to say that I know a lot of our listeners are in the East Tennessee and, generally speaking, the Appalachian region. Uh, I have been invited, and it looks like I'm going to be going to Theology Beer Camp in August 2018 in Asheville, North Carolina. So, if you're interested in uh, going there, uh, or if you know folks from the Milligan days or other listeners to the podcast who would be interested to see me there, uh, I believe it's August 16th through 18th in Asheville, North Carolina. You can Google Theology Beer Camp and it'll take you somewhere in Trip Fuller's uh, direction. So uh, I'd like to see some folks out there. I'm just going to put that out there. But David, to answer the actual question that you actually posed, uh, there's been a an essay on the Chronicle of Higher Education's website called Dear Humanities Profs, We Are the Problem. Uh, it has been met with approval, with shock, with disgust. The reactions have been, you know, wonderful, wonderfully variable. Uh, and I think that makes it a good uh, subject matter for an episode. So that's what we're doing next time. Well, excellent. I look forward to kicking another ant bed with you that will be fun as it always is uh, stretch grow with us dear listeners as as i am almost always uh, stretching with you <laughs> so in the meanwhile if you would like to send any comments on this episode any questions any snide remarks or uh, stories from your own uh from your own experiences with honors or great books or or any any sorts of things that resemble it if you squint and tilt your head 
You can send those to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can post them on the show notes to our blog at christianhumanist.org when those post. You can also post them on our Facebook wall. You can like us on Facebook. Um, we're, we're still there. We haven't left yet in spite of, well, you follow the news. Anyways, I'm David Grubbs on behalf of the present Nathan Gilmore on the behalf of the absent Michael Farmer wishing you all grand weeks. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our editor is Ellen Peterson. And I will leave you with the words of Luther. Let your sin be strong, but let your faith be stronger.